Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The following is a presentation of the Belly Up Sports Media Network. Thank you for listening to this Belly Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we'd go belly up, so we made it our name, and we're still here. Coming up on the Behind the Mic podcast, when I first learned of the NFL's unofficial 12-year ban on black players, I never asked these questions. Did they play after college? And if so, where? I now have my answer. You're Behind the Mic with Michael Neal Jr., All right, it's late Wednesday. Papers are prepared. All right, microphone. Yeah, okay, it's working. All right, hey, NFL historians and lovers of sports history, welcome in. This show is for you guys and gals. Again, I always say this every show. Look, it's cool if you already know this stuff. That's great. Congratulations, all right? But there's always someone else who doesn't. So I'm here to do three things. This is my rule. I'm here to enlighten, teach, and learn. This is the Behind the Mic Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Neal Jr. This show is presented by Billy Up Sports, Billy Up Sports Media, Billy Up Media, okay? Billy Up Sports Podcast Network and also BillyUpSports.com. Check us out. Check out the merch. Check out all the other shows, especially this one. I always say that. Behind the mic. You know, think of that first. Behind the mic. Get that in your mind. Get that in your mental. You can catch my show as well as all the others on our home base of Megaphone. Also, all of the favorites. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, YouTube, and more. So, last two shows, we're talking about the Black Pioneers and then going into the band. Okay, what are we talking about? Black History Month has come and gone, of course. I continue on, okay? There's, There's no limit, okay? Black History, was it hashtag Black History 365? But I'm honoring this, and this will probably be, um, eh, I don't know. I haven't decided yet. This may be my last show on this subject, but it's just so interesting. Just a quick story. I mean, I was sitting uh, with one of my brothers, okay? He's like, um, you know, a stepbrother, you know, brother, you know, by marriage. That's my brother. Um, His name is James. And he's not a football guy or sports guy by any means. I mean, uh, when his younger brothers played (laughs) college football and did he root for him of course uh but he's not a sports guy he's a movie guy music man he can sing and all that stuff we're sitting in church and uh i don't know how we got on the subject 
But um, yeah, I do. I'll save that for myself. But we got to talking about my show, and he was like, "Yeah, what you've been doing it on, you know?" And I told him that there was a 12-year period where there were no black football players. And he's like, "Are you serious?" I'm like, "Yeah." You know, some of this stuff, I mean, it was new to me some years ago. And the more and more I read about it, the more insight I've gathered. And it's an amazing thing, even those who are not sports people can listen to this and get some kind of black history or some history period. And like this NFL history show. That's what my focus is on. Right. First, what, four or five shows was like everybody else's. And then I said, you know what? My niche is history. That's what I love. And then when I delve into this part of it, I do nothing but continue to learn. Um, I'm reading these books and I'm, I'm researching, I'm watching videos and movies and um, I'm seeing things and it just all adds up. But it's just one of those periods, uh, I think, in NFL history that I'm sure that they would like to forget. But I mean, that was the times. Again, you have to understand the times that we were in. This is like the early 19s, all right, 1900s, when you had the first four, Charles Fallis and Doc Baker and Henry McDonald and Gideon um, and Gideon Smith. You know, these guys played pre-NFL. Then you got into the Fritz Pollards, the Paul Robesons, the Soul Butlers, uh, the Joe Lillards, those 13 that played after the league started. But there were no more than five at a time in the league. And that was in, what, 1926? Uh, so, you know, it was the time, a time of segregation, a time where it was just hard being a minority, especially in this country, in the United States of America. And one thing I did have to also remember and uh, not necessarily learn, but you have to remember that not everybody hated. Some people were just going along, going with the flow. I was talking to my buddy. I always refer to him when I can. Kenny Johnson, he played defensive end for the Buffalo Bills. Uh, from what 79 to about what 85 84 85 and uh, you know he grew up in those mid the late 60s going through the 70s uh, right here in Nashville and you experienced racism he experienced all of these things and there were reasons why you didn't go here and didn't go there and we got to talking about Joe Lillard Joe Lillard had kind of a reputation as being a hothead that's why what I read but the thing is is like some guys they, they just they didn't want to take it, you know, but there were many others where they were really kind of respectable. And even in the newspapers and even some fans, they knew it that this you say this and you do this to this guy, whether it's the opposite team, the opposing team or the fans, then it'll get up under his skin. And he got tossed out of a lot of games in 1932 and I think maybe some in 1933, but I don't think he even started any games in 1933 as a halfback, but still led the team. In yardage and, I think, touchdowns as well. He was just that good. But, you know, the, the conversation that me and Vic Kenny had was that as African-Americans, as blacks, you were taught, you know, you don't go here, you don't go there, you be respectful. And it's like, you know what, Kenny? It's kind of like, uh, like this. There's nothing new under the sun. And you also have to remember that even now we're telling, I'm telling my kids as a 45-year-old man, telling my son's, uh, to be respectful, to tell my daughter the same thing. Be respectful when you get pulled over, for instance. You know, you see what's happening in this world. Try to be respectful, re respectful. Um, even when you're being disrespected, sometimes that can not end well. You know what I mean? And it was the same thing back then. Of course, you had a lot more hate and a lot more danger back then. So you had to, you know, almost 
kind of keep to yourself and you had to be strong. And that's why I respect those first 17 and even those that came well after them going all the way to what, the, the 50s and 60s and 70s, just talking about just the African-American athletes as well as just the people in general. Took a lot of courage. Took a lot of courage to be first. What have I said? And it was a quote and I'm gonna find it. It sucks being a trailblazer. It, because it's not easy it's not fun okay you endured but i've been watching um a video one of the rare uh interviews that fritz Pollard did i think he was probably right about 85 or something like that and he was talking about how the fans were chiding him back in college in 1915 16 you know 17 i think i can't remember what school they were at uh, but he played for Brown and they were saying bye-bye Blackbird. And at the end of him talking about it, in the midst of him singing that song, because the, the interviewer asked him, you know, about those things, what he had to endure. And when he was singing that song, he started crying. He was tearing up right then because obviously that hurt. Now, he did say, I just smirked and I'll run for an 80-yard touchdown or something like that. But it still hurt. These were people. So, you know, some of this um, is just you have to think about and thinking about the times, thinking about the state of pro football and everything that was going on with Fritz Pollard. You know, when he, when he made his exit in 1926, the league went from five African-Americans to just one. And that was what Duke Slater um, and uh, he was playing with the Chicago Cardinals at the time. But by 1934, there were zero blacks. And like I said, we talked about the unofficial ban. We talked about the factors uh, where there was less jobs, there was segregation, and then there was the difficulty of trying to, for lack of a better way to say it, really accommodate African-American players when you get, gave them a chance. They couldn't eat where you went. They, they couldn't sleep where you, where you slept. They couldn't, uh, sometimes, like Pollard, he said they couldn't even dress you know, at the same place where everybody else was dressing. There were times when he had to run out onto the field just before the kickoff because they didn't want him there just that badly. And so, and then you have to endure not only the verbal ab abuse, but also the physical abuse. When you got tackled back then, it was a dog pile. And when you got dog piled on, you got some extracurriculars. Chris Pollard learned uh, how to keep people off of him even back in college. They had those real spikes back then, right? So when he would get tackled, he would roll and have his feet straight up in the air. It's like, okay, come get you some if you want to do that. You got to remember, this dude wasn't the biggest guy in the world. Chris Pollard was, what, 5'8", 5'9", 160, 170 pounds. But he was one of the best players in college football and one of the best players in pro football when he played. So looking at that, and by 1934, you had uh, Ray Kemp, who had made his exit. He and Joe Lillard had already made their exit from the NFL, right? Um, because of some of the things they had to go through. Um, and then, let's just be real, it, you had George Preston Marshall, who just happened to be, you know, the Southern, um, uh, the, the, the prime example of what southern hatred could be he comes in in 1932 and two years later there's no blacks in in the league ray kemp he played all of four games as a rookie played the first three was cut they brought him back for the last game uh, of the season against the new york giants at the play polo grounds and then he was gone again of course i had to leave off telling you that the pirates the pittsburgh pirates before they were the steelers they called him back in 1934 he said ah you know what 
I'm good because I'm going to finish my college education. And then, of course, he goes on to a 39-year career uh, as a collegiate coach as well as an AD. And one of those schools was right here in Nashville, Tennessee, then called Tennessee A&I. Now it's Tennessee State University, TSU. So when you have that, and of course, George Hallis, he had some people that he wanted to bring in too. Get to, to that in a, minute, uh, in a minute. But the question that I never really asked, even before, I mean, since I've done it, okay. But even when I first learned of the 12-year ban, where did they go? Where else could black football players compete after college? Some of them didn't compete in college at all. Maybe they played high school and then that was it. <laughs> you have to understand that that happened too. They went to work after high school. But there were those who did go to college and they were good enough, whether they were at an all white college starring as a black player or if they were playing in HBCUs, which they got no sniffs in the early years of professional football, let alone, you know, you know just the, the NFL. OK, so before and after the NFL, you didn't get a lot of that. Right. But none at all from HBCUs. Some played other sports, although I think what you had the. Uh, um, they didn't play in Major League Baseball because they stayed white until 1947. But the NBA, that wasn't around yet, right? So what was it left? There was semi-pro ball as well as minor league baseball, basketball. And of course, you had the Negro Leagues. That was very prominent. And of course, the Negro Leagues, even to this day, is much well known. Okay, you, you know about the Negro Leagues. You can walk in to some mall and some stores sell Negro League gear. So it, right now, but they're not selling the stuff I'm about to tell you about. And I don't think it would be pretty hard to find, I, I would say. There was also semi-pro football and minor league football. In 1926, for example, you have to understand, again, going back to the times. So there were other reasons. Like I said, you had people that were getting beat up while playing african americans 1926 the ken bulldogs were playing at the polo grounds the polo grounds in new york city against the new york giants they were not going to play this game against them why what was the problem well solomon butler Saul saul butler was their halfback slash quarterback and they wanted him to uh, they were refusing to take the field unless he voluntarily withdrew from the game why again how were they treated? They had all that physical and verbal abuse, the segregation, constantly having to find other places to eat, sleep, and dress for the game. Not to mention that the teams, you know, they always, they were canceling, uh, canceling the game from time to time, you know, but it, 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 some of them weren't all, it wasn't all hate, some of it was. Some of it was dislike. They didn't want to play against a black player, especially if they were better than they were. That is to be noted. But then also, some of it was just accommodations. Again, I talked about Ray Kemp, right? When he played at the Pro Polo Grounds in 1933, his last game, he did not get to sleep in the Manhattan Hotel. He had to go to Harlem, to the YMCA, to sleep, and then go to the game. You know what I mean? Stuff like that. The unofficial ban, of course, it began pretty much in 1934. Again, 1926, there were five African-Americans on the NFL rosters. A record for the time. Fritz Pollard, of course, was one of those. He was let go unceremoniously by the Akron Pros that uh, after that season was over. But he had an idea. Okay, so yes, he had business ventures and things like that. But by 1928, his point that he wanted to prove 
is that football could be played without these kind of incidents, whether it was against, well, really against other white teams. But he had to do it on a lower level. Um, there were other teams before this that actually, uh, well, there, there were, as far as on record, there were other teams after this. But in 1928, he had an idea. Of course, being from Illinois, Chicago, he decided to start a team with uh, a partner of his, Albert C. Johnson. And they called this team, not the Blackhawks of hockey, with all one word, the Chicago Black Hawks. This was their semi-pro team, okay? And this team actually included, uh, during the season, this is 1928, some of these guys were still playing and then others had already moved on. Duke Slater was still playing. Jay Williams, who had played with Pollard and uh, in Brown, as well as in the NFL, he had signed on as a halfback slash in, and Saul Butler did as well with the Chicago Blackhawks. They put together an all-black team, okay? And they were going to be playing independently, uh, playing against other independent white pro teams, okay? In and around the Chicago area. And this occurred during the fall and winter months, and they ended up becoming more so of a road team. So, and I'm a quote from my, one of my great books that I have. Check that. Actually, this is one of the articles that I found. Um, I've done uh, some shows before with some information from one of these great sources. And this source is based around, it was called The Coffin Corner. And this one was on Fritz Pollard and the Brown Bombers, okay? But from this source, and I'm gonna quote ver verbatim, in 1928, Pollard and Albert, Dr. Albert C. Johnson organized the Chicago Blackhawks, an all-black professional team based in the Windy City to demonstrate that blacks and whites could compete without racial incidents. The reason given by giant management for excluding Butler from the game at the program, Polo Grounds in 1926. So they were, that was the whole point. They could play uh, without having you know, all of these uh, issues. Obviously, I think that you're going to have some blacks that's going to have a place to stay. They'll have a good place to eat. But it was more so on the field. Could they deal without the verbal as well as the physical issues, <laughs> so to speak, okay? And again, they played against both black and white college teams as well. And some players that were on the field, they were actually non-collegians. So again, you know, they wanted to, to prove that point. Pollard wanted to prove that point. And it was based around the whole fact that they wanted to get blacks back in the NFL. Or really, at that time, they wanted to get blacks, more blacks into the NFL. They hadn't been banned yet. Okay, it was a couple years away, but they was trying to prove that point. And one thing that they did, they did become that road team, right? But there wasn't a whole lot of coverage except for like with black newspapers. You'll find it out with a lot of these teams uh, and on this level. And also there weren't a lot of people in the stands. One thing I thought about was my son, my oldest son, um, was, is a former college basketball player, but he plays semi-pro basketball right now. Picture this in your mind, because these are the times that we're talking about, even going back to the 1900s. But this one is probably even less people. <laughs> All right, so 
my son plays semi-pro basketball at local schools, mostly middle schools, and you know maybe a local gym gymnasiums, <laughs> gyms um, that's not attached to schools. Maybe it's your community center or something like that. But mostly at other middle schools and stuff like that. Maybe some high schools. And a lot of people that's going to these games, you know, they're paying what five, ten bucks to go into these games. Uh, mostly ten, and uh, sometimes more. But there's not a lot of people in the stands. The only people in the stands are your family, maybe a girlfriend. You know, you got your boys. Maybe they bring their girlfriend. And it's not it's not a lot of people unless they're connected to the players themselves. They're not necessarily fans. You don't have any fans, okay? That's the picture that I want to paint of the way that these games were played and in front of the, the – these are the people they're playing in front of. And it's purely for the love of the game. Are they getting paid? Yes, but not a whole lot. Okay, you can't make a career of this. It wasn't a career yet. Well, they were hurting for that kind of money. But the crazy thing is, is that they actually had more, instead of in Chicago, they had more success going out to California, playing teams out there. But there was a price to be paid. But they played against some white all-star teams. And you have to also remember the times. By 1929, their second year, the Great Depression was on. From 1930, uh, 29 to 39, that's when the, the Great Depression was hitting the world. Not just the United States, but the world. And so, again, like I said last week, I mean, there's not a lot of people that's spending their discretionary income on this. But especially if it's not the NFL, right? And the NFL was hurting themselves. Remember, they went down to this, uh, the, 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 what, eight teams? They had only eight teams at one point. Going into 1930, of course, by 1933, they was back up to 10, but still, they were hurting. They were not able to pull together the same crowds that they were uh, because of the Depression. But with that, plus, you know, there's not a lot of money going around being passed in the hat. They ended up disbanding during the 1931-1932 seasons. A lot of the players were broke, and I had no idea... But they ended up stranded on the West Coast. Couldn't even come back home. That's crazy, right? It really is. So with both the Chicago Blackhawks and then his next venture, he was trying to do one thing. He wanted to showcase black talent as well as prove that we can play with you guys without any racial incidents on the field. Hopefully, that'll actually help off it. Well, he... And a man who was a Harlem sports promoter by the name of Har Herschel Day. Excuse me, not Horace. Herschel Day, not Morris Day. Uh, Pollard and Herschel Day, they came together and formed the Brown Bombers in New York. And that was an all-star, all-black football team. And it was named after the great fighters, Joe Lewis, who was 22-0 at the time. And so he had signed on some guys that were you know, NFL-level talent same some of these same guys and then some others that didn't get a chance to play in the league he did get joe lillard the midnight express he played with the cardinals right and then after that he signs on to play with the brown bombers dave myers remember him he played two years in the league with stanton island island and the brooklyn dodgers well he's right there up under his nose right and so he gets him he gets a man by the name of a player by the name of otis uh troop he played at morgan state he was an All-American fullback and also another fullback by the name of Thomas the Tank Conrad. They called him the Negro Nagurski. 
just like Bronco Nagurski. And I guess this guy was, you know, one of those, you know, uh, one of those runners that could that that could take you down through there. Uh, that's terrible. But anyway, um, he was one of those great running backs uh, that was for his size could do a lot of damage. And so in their first game, actually, October 13, 1935, it started a 5-0 run when they played against teams like the Kegel All-Stars. Christian Kegel was an All-American halfback at the U.S. Military Academy, and he was on, featured on the Time, um, Time Magazine cover. He played with the New York Giants and the Brooklyn Dodgers. And uh, with three weeks to pa- practice, the Bombers put it on his All-Stars, 28-6. And then uh, they played against next in, in uh, 1934, uh, the, or the 1934 Rose Bowl champion Columbia University team. Uh, they, they beat what Stanford in that game, but their quarterback Cliff Montgomery, you know, he was one of the best players in college football at the time. They beat Columbia 27 to nothing, and then after that they w- moved to that five and zero record uh, to playing against the the Pasic Red Devils. So, you know, you had some teams, not necessarily NFL grade, but they were all-stars. They were some good teams or some decent teams, to say the least. And, uh, I mean, they competed. They competed. Remember, college hadn't gone nowhere. College was still looked upon as the superior sport, along with pro baseball. But by the time the Bombers had gotten this 5-0 record, they had outscored their opponents 92-9. 92-9. But the crazy part is their first loss actually came against the New Rochelle Bulldogs on December 1st, 1935. And the game-winning touchdown was scored by a real-life guy that probably played for the Mean Machine. He was a sing-sing New York sing-sing prison star. (laughs) Yes, and we're going to do a show on this guy. His name was Edwin Collins, Alabama Pitts. That's what they called him, Alabama Pitts. He played some minor league, uh, some uh, minor league baseball, and he actually played two years in the NFL. But uh, they—that's what you know—they got their first loss in 1936. You know, they supposedly accumulated a record of six zero and one, and in 1937, a record of five two and one. Now, the thing about it is, is that some of these records may be—I um, mean, I trust them, but then there's other articles that I've read to say that because the coverage wasn't that heavy, some of these records may not be complete let's just say that they probably play some games we don't even know about remember not a lot of coverage okay um and during this tenure pollard really wanted to play an nfl team that's what he wanted to do he wanted to prove we could play against any of you guys and pollard was trying to bait the new york giants as well as the brooklyn dodgers of the nfl to plan his all-star squad just to prove that point uh and this is what you're missing out on, okay? You're missing out on these guys right here. You could have these guys on your NFL rosters, but, you know, they stuck to their guns. There was actually a rumor that was reported, and again, um, from reading and researching, the rumor was probably started by Pollard to try to get uh, these guys to play. But, I mean, it didn't work, all right? So, uh, what was it? it was reported in the newspaper, The New York Age by Lewis Dial. That basically was trying to speak about an exhibition game between the Giants and the Bombers that did not even exist. Of course, Giants owner Tim Mara, he didn't even bite. So by the end of Pollard's career in football, it actually came in 1938. 
um, there was the guy that they got permission from to play their home games. It was the baseball field, the home baseball field of the Cuban Giants of the Negro National League. Alessandro Alex Pompez. He was a numbers man and a racketeer, and he got some uh, got in some big trouble. All right, so but he was the guy who was over the home field of the Bombers, which was Dykeman Oval uh, in in, uh, in in Chicago. Pompez ended up having to leave the U.S. and sever ties to all things, including his Giants team. And guess who lost out? Yeah, the Bombers. And with that, Pollard ended up pulling out completely. So, but it, it good thing is in 1938, it was pretty cool that to see that they actually joined the Northwest Football League in 1938. Uh, and there was a league, the NWFL was a league of semi-pro teams that played, uh, had been playing since 1936. And the Bombers became the first all-black team to play in an integrated professional football league. I mean, that's great. So, but it is to be noted that the Brown Bombers were the most visible black team during that 12-year stretch of the African-American absence from the NFL. Um, also behind them was the Chicago Comets, who were coached by Duke Slayer and two men by the name of Donald Simmons and Henry Hatcher. Now, unfortunately, they only lasted a year, and they would come back as the Chicago Panthers, another one of those semi-pro teams. So you had teams popping up left and right. And you also have to understand, I mean, there were a lot of leagues uh, throughout the years of, I mean, just aside from the NFL, you had the Ohio League. Remember, that's where Charles Fallis was playing when he first got in pro football and signed back in 1904, right? Uh, he had played those two years prior, 1902 and 1903, with Shelby Athletic Club. But you had those teams that were started in Pennsylvania and in Ohio. But the Ohio League was the most prominent. And you had some other semi-pro and minor leagues like the American Association, the New England Football League, the Eastern Football League, and the Northwest Football League, where the Bombers had joined. And then another one of the more prominent ones was founded in 1940, the Pacific Coast Football League. And according to Arthur Ashe's book, A Hard Road to Glory, very good book. And this is actually a series of books which you can, they actually are broke up into different sports. Just buy the big one and get it all in one. But according to his book, the PC... PFL ranked second only to the NFL in importance. And 13 blacks played on six of its teams. The Los Angeles Bulldogs and the Hollywood Bears and the Oakland Giants, uh, the San Francisco Clippers, the San Jose Mustangs, and the San Diego Bombers. Now, they had a lot of fluctuation according to Coffin Corner. Uh, they, they, they had probably as many, what, like 13 teams, I think, at one time. And they had as little as about six or seven so but it was uh, a legitimate league okay in 1946 the year of reintegration you had in virginia the virginia negro football league that came to be the richland uh richmond rams the norfolk brown bombers another brown bombers team the newport news lighthearts and the portsmouth swans not spartans the swans these teams competed and as independents after you know their one season but they only played uh one they will they played one another okay but they also played local black colleges such as virginia union and norfolk state and this is according to charles ross in his book outside the lines and the majority of these teams folded a lot of these squads they folded up 
um, and again, it was due to the low attendance, the very low attendance. And there wasn't much coverage, again, you know, like black local newspapers in the states around, those are the ones where we get our information from. That's where uh, all of that's the, the, the history comes from. Going back to Charles Follis, these games were covered by local papers. These beginnings, whether it's football, baseball, basketball, hockey, jockeying, any of those sports, you had, if it was small time or at its beginnings, they were covered by local papers. And so it wasn't a whole lot of national coverage. Now, the Major League Baseball, well, that was totally, totally different, right? And so um, this was a sport in football outside of college that was trying to grow. And also had to remember, I thought about this actually driving home today. You also had, uh, what, three different AFLs, American Football Leagues, that tried to start between 1926 and 1945. All of them failed. None lasted more than a year. One started and failed before it could even get started. And then, of course, you had the AAFC, which actually did put a dent in the NFL. They ended up taking two teams into the league to help the NFL grow. You know, they actually, the AAFC, for all of their problems they had, listen to my series on that. Um, I think it was from, what, last year? But they challenged the NFL. But one of the things that was key in their challenging of the NFL is that they actually brought in black players. George Hallis. He was trying to get some black players here and there, even though Pollard called him, you know, prejudiced. He was trying to get some black players to help him win. And he drafted George Talafaro uh, in what, the mid 40s. Talafaro said, you know what, I'm good. I'm going to go over here at this other new league because they're actually allowing us to play. We don't have to deal with that crap, you know, that y'all are putting on us. So, you know, you had some guys. That, <laughs> that some NFL coaches did want and probably some owners, but they never could come on that agreement, right? Um, but they, they, a lot of these, these other leagues, and even the same thing happened with the AAFC, except remember this, if you had, didn't listen to that show on, that I did on the All-America Football Conference, during those four years, the AAFC was competing against the NFL, they actually had more fans show up to their games than the NFL did. That's amazing. That's amazing. They put on a good show, but they just didn't have the staying power. They just didn't. And you did have too many. Um, you, know, you had the drafts and things like that that had gotten started. Too many of the, the, the talented players were going to the NFL, but money-wise, they just couldn't keep up. So, you know, they folded and, uh, you know, they didn't have a lot of coverage and some white newspapers they didn't report on these games at all so but the point of all of this is that although african americans didn't get a chance to compete on the highest level in the nfl for 12 years they got a chance to play football at least after college it wasn't glamorous but it was an opportunity to continue to play at some capacity the nfl they missed out on a lot of talent you got guys like ozzy simmons in 1934 all american level running back at the University of Iowa. He didn't get a sniff, no NFL contract. He had others, you may or may not know these men. Horace Bell and Dwight Reed uh, played at the University of Minnesota. Also, Clarence Hinton and Bernie Jefferson at Northwestern. Jefferson actually signed a contract to play for the Chicago Rockets in 1947 for the AAFC at least. 
but most of these guys they didn't willis ward from the university of michigan some like i said some got a shot and most of them did not uh, i know you never heard of some of these guys but you know again you had tank conrad from morgan state um big bertha edwards from kentucky state nfl wasn't grabbing anyone from hbcus and again george hallis you know he wanted kenny washington out of ucla to the bears but instead he ended up playing in the pc uh the, the pacific coast football league and and that league actually has some pretty good players they brought in guys that played a little bit of nfl you know but then you had some that didn't play any they had jackie robinson yes that jackie robinson woody strode and kenny washington and also dave myers who played at nyu they had some guys they did they were good enough to play in the NFL, they just didn't get the chance. It was a great day when both the NFL and the new league, the AAFC, reintegrated professional football in 46. And again, you had Kenny Washington, Woody Strode, Bill Willis, and Marion Motley. They were among the first four in. See what I did there? March Madness. <laughs> Y'all enjoy your basketball. That's it. References, references, that's it. Thanks to profootballresearchers.org. The Coffin Corner got two different articles. Volume 12, number one, written in 1990, Fritz Pollard and the Brown Bombers by John M. Carroll. And also volume 11, number five in 1989. Not only the ball was brown, black players in minor league football by Bob Gill and Todd Mayer. And just another correction, Todd Mayer says that the Brown Bombers were started in 1936. It was actually 1935, all right? Outside the lines, these are my books. African-Americans and the Integration of the National Football League, Charles K. Ross, the author. Also, this is a very good book on Fritz Pollard if you don't have one. Breaking the Color Barrier, the story of the first African-American NFL head coach, Frederick Douglass Fritz Pollard, written by Frank Foster. And also, A Hard Road to Glory, the African-American athlete in football, 1919 to 1945 by Arthur R. Ash. Jr. This has been the Behind the Mic Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Neal Jr. This show is presented by Belly Up Sports and the Belly Up Sports Podcast Network. Belly Up Sports Media. Belly Up Media. I got to say that right. Also, bellyupsports.com. Check us out. Click on it. Read the stories. Check out the shows. Check out the merch. You can find us on Megaphone and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and YouTube. Listen to the show. All right. Wow. I'm at the beat forced to find your house. I'm out.